Today's date is Wednesday, December 6, 2017. The title of today's trioed message is Spiritual Stance. Amen. I want to start off by giving you all some Mary, a summary of last Sunday. It was ring revelations and calling the round. We first started with the clinch. Everybody say clinch. 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 From that, we learned that God's will is not yet a reality on earth. There are things still yet to be subdued, coming from Hebrews 2, verse 8. Secondly, we called, or Pastor Wade talked about the turn. Everybody say turn. 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 Now, if you're taking notes, be sure you get these, these titles or uh, steps very clear because you're going to hear them on a repetitive basis. In the turn, we looked at 1 Timothy 1.18, that God told us to develop a strategy for winning. Do you all want to win? Yes. yes. Everybody, everybody doesn't go into a fight hoping they lose. They hope that they win. Yeah. All right, next one, Mount Unoffensive. Everybody say offensive. Offensive. We're going to show you how it's good to be offensive. In 2 Kings 6 and Amos 3, 7, we ask God to open our eyes and we receive his reveal plan for our offensive attack. Amen? Amen. Amen. We believe that this month is going to be a series then that we're calling the 12th round. Last Sunday was the first message in that series, and it feels a little bit like we're in the 12th round, doesn't it? Yeah. 12th month of the year, 12th round. But uh, as Pastor Piro said, we are going to win. Is that right, Chris? Yes. It's good to see Charlie with you. Charlie, we're glad you're here. You're family now. Amen. As we talk about this series this month, there's going to be three features of every message, and we want you to know that. The very first one is that we're going to clinch with the enemy. In the clinch, it can be a little uncomfortable. That means we're going to take an honest look at our enemy and some of his capabilities, some of his tactics. But then we're going to turn. We're going to pivot from that stance to looking at what God's Word says about our enemy, about the future battle plan, about those things. And lastly, when we turn, we're going to mount an offensive. We're going to look at concrete, action-oriented things that we can do that causes our enemy to fall and for us to stand. The end result of that is going to be that God's plan is accomplished on every corner of the earth. Yeah. We will see the Lamb lay down with the, the lion. We will see the children play next to the cobra. We are going to establish God's order on the earth, but it will start one life, one family, and one nation at a time. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Come on, how many of you know that this is the right kind of series for our church? Yes. This is the right time, isn't it? We are, in fact, in the 12th round. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and let's look at verse 11. Please say, there when you are there. there. Amen. Let's see how much we're there. Verse 11, it says this, In order that Satan might not outwit us, uh -oh. for we are not unaware of his schemes. Anybody ever been outwitted? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Come on, parents. Any of you parents ever been outwitted by your kiddos? Yeah, nobody. <laughs> yes. The reason that the Bible tells us things like this is because it is absolutely possible for us to get outwitted. There's, this, there's a deception that's there, and what the Bible is clear about telling us is saying, hey, we don't want you to get fooled. Hey, pay attention. Let's be reminded that we are, in fact, in the middle of a battle. In our case, we're in the 12th round. And what we're doing is we're examining the Scriptures to find out. Last time together on Sunday, 
We use 2 Kings chapter 6 as a, as a picture for us that we were praying that God would open our eyes. Everybody say, open my eyes. Open my eyes. Come on now. You know to get in a fight, you're going to have to have some eyes that are wide open so you can rightly see what the enemy is trying to do. Because we're going to destroy his plan at every turn. Amen? Amen. Yeah. Are you ready to destroy the plan of the enemy or not? Yes. Yeah. See, tonight you're going to need this word. Tonight, we're going to need this word. Yes. Tonight, we're all going to engage with what the scripture has to say because we need to be reminded of this battle. Far too much of our society, far too much, let's not make it so global for just a minute. Society is one thing, right? Because we can all hide in the idea of society. The people in this room, we need to make sure that we are engaging with the battle that's before us. Amen. A passive approach to this is not going to win you a victory. And then we're going to do crazy things like accuse God of some wrongdoing because we're the ones yeah. not advancing the kingdom. Yeah. That's not going to be us. In Jesus' name, there's not going to be one man, woman, or child in this room that continues to think that way, at least not after our series. Amen? Amen. Amen. Tonight, we're going to clinch. We're going to come face to face with the reality, with the fact that God is not the only one with a plan, my friends. Anybody engaged in some, some plan destruction here lately? You've been, you thought you had a plan, and what, what do we say? We're going to start, uh, it's going to be one of my favorite phrases. Everybody has a plan until what? You punch him in the mouth. Punched in the mouth. You get punched in the face. Go ahead, Rob. Punch him in the face. Right? Everybody has a plan until then. Well, it's because there's another, there's an alternate plan out there that is working against the kingdom of light. Um, Tara, if you'll put up, we have a picture here, a slide can everybody see that? At least see the, the big part of the first one there. The word is Satan. Yeah. How many of you feel like you need glasses right now? <laughs> that was not part of the plan. Right. The word here in the Hebrew is Satan. And you can see the highlighted part here. It is a word that means adversary. Satan, an accuser. He's our adversary. He is the one that is standing as a foe against us. He is ever accusing you can see many scriptures throughout the Old Testament where the enemy is standing there and he's accusing the people of God. That is the function of Satan here. It's his title. Everybody say title. Title. It's his title. I don't even know that we're going to give him a name. We're just going to say that this is the title. Me working in schools long enough, every male teacher in the school was always called coach. <laughs> Didn't matter what your name was. They used to call me coach. They're like, coach. I was like, yeah, I don't coach. They're like, yeah, you're the coach of the band. You're the coach, right? <laughs> People started functioning and they were very comfortable not needing to know names because they understood the function of the person that they were talking to. This is what we're talking about when we see the enemy here, when we see the word Satan. When you hear the word Satan, because of Dana Carvey skits, you know, <laughs> and uh, all kind of things that have existed... As Pastor have said, it is a functional title, uh, something like prosecuting attorney. When you understand how the word functions in Hebrew, though, it really takes it a little bit out of the um, abstract theological world and puts it in your face. Uh, let's take our next slide. So in this slide, you see two Strong's numbers that are in consecutive order. The first one, 7853, is a verb verb that means to attack uh it can figuratively mean to accuse but what does it primarily mean attack attack would you rather be accused or physically attacked 
<laughs> Most people would rather be accused. You know, this gets interesting because if you put a definite article in front of it, like the, the attack, that's what you're saying when you say the title Satan. Put another way, Strong's number 7853 is the act of attacking. It is also the act of resisting. But when the definite article is placed in front of it, the word becomes a name or a title, Satan, which is Strong 7854. If you're lost in that, oh, you can be honest, who's lost in that? Who, who that, okay, see, thank you for being honest. One country boy in the back, right? And Timothy. <laughs> so when you want to understand how that works, to illustrate the point, you could say, if you're attacked, say, if I'm attacked. If I'm attacked. You've just been Sataned. In Hebrew, to say you're attacked is to say that you have been Sataned, so to speak. Of course, if the one who is attacking you, then Satan, Satan do you. Do you understand what I'm saying by that? If the attack takes on such a personified personal nature that there is an evil power, a personage behind it, then we call that Satan. But any attack is some smaller version of Satan in Hebrew. The reason that I'm emphasizing that point is that Satan is obviously not just accusing you. He's not standing off somewhere just lobbing lies at you. His very title indicates a much more serious attack. Yeah. You know who understood this well? The apostle of love. Turn with me to John 10 and find verse 10. Say you're there when you were there. John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Here we see that the one represented as the thief that we're tonight supposing as Satan has a threefold plan. Who can say what it is? Steal, kill, and destroy. That's diametrically opposed to God's plan. God has a revealed plan for your life. But the enemy also has a plan that is being revealed against God's plan for your life. It's not just some theological construct where he's standing lobbing lies from a distance or is some kind of passive resistance. His very name means what is attacking you. Well, that's a little more in your face, isn't it? Well, I want to get in his face tonight in the clinch. Amen. Amen. I, I, I want to take this a little further. Matthew, can you help us as we go through the clinch? Absolutely. Everybody turn to Acts chapter 21. We'll start in verse 10. Say there when you are there. There? There. Now, it's to your advantage whenever you are clinching with your enemy to be aware of what his plan is, what he's going to do, right? Well... I want to let you know that tonight we're going to encourage you that you are not helpless in this endeavor. Amen. God's word reveals to us exactly what the devil's plan is over and over again, as mentioned in John 10, 10. So let's read here in Acts 21. We'll see some more about this. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, The Holy Spirit says in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem 
will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Here we have a group of believers with Paul with them. And they are depending on the presence and word of God to reveal what the enemy's plans are. Raise your hand if something similar to this has happened to you where you received a prophetic word that has revealed what the devil is going to do and you were not caught off guard. Without this word, we are blind and we are helpless. Who would like to enter into a, a battle or a ring with a blindfold on? No, nobody. You get your bell rung. You'd be knocked out cold. Let's look at a few key points about this. Uh, I'm sorry. Let's pick up in verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. You know, when God's word speaks clearly about your destination and particularly the plan that is before you, first revealing what the enemy's plan is, you can, you can be absolutely set like flint on accomplishing it. And not even those that are closest to you can dissuade you from accomplishing God's will no matter what the revealed plan of the enemy is. Amen. It was never God's will for Paul to die in Jerusalem. He would go on to glory as he entered into Rome. It was God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem and beyond. Agabus received a revelation from God, that, uh, but Satan twisted response of uh, Paul's friends. They actually opposed the plan of God, albeit momentarily. Paul clinched with the enemy. Everybody say clinched. Clinched. He turned. Everybody say turn. Turn. And he mounted unoffensive. Paul came face to face with the enemy's desire to kill him. As we referred back to John 10, 10, I want you to look around. See the believers in here. The enemy's plan is to steal from the person that you're looking at. It's to kill the person that you're looking at. And it's to destroy the person you're looking at. So we need each other in this endeavor to hear what God's plan is, revealing the enemy's plan. Amen? Amen. Hey, just to settle on that point just a little bit. Yeah. I, I don't want to too lightly skip over something. Did Agabus correctly hear from God? Yes, yes without any question. Did they draw the right conclusion? No. Why not? Because Satan was opposing them. And so the men that were Paul's traveling companions actually ended up opposing God's will. And had Paul not been willing to clinch face to face with the enemy and look and say... You want to kill me in Jerusalem? You, you want to beat me in Jerusalem? I'm not ready to die there if I need to. I'm going anyway. Then God's plan never would have happened. It was his tenacious faith pushing forward in the clinch with the enemy that kept God's will from being thwarted there because the prophet heard, but they drew incorrect conclusions from it. Can you sympathize with that? Yes. This reminds us of other things that you see in the scripture. Yeah, absolutely. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Are you letting this sink in just a little bit, this idea? Is that, does that sound familiar to any of us, the idea of hearing something from the Lord and drawing the wrong conclusions from it? Yeah, yeah this is part of a real battle that's going on. 
It's not just us involved. There's an enemy that's trying to, trying to add subterfusion in there. He's trying to deceive. He's trying to, there's a lot of things that are going on. And that's why we have to keep coming back to the right battle plan. Let's look at Matthew chapter 16. And let's start in verse 17. Are you there with me? There. Is everybody there with me? I'm there. Amen. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by man, but my Father in heaven. God had actually revealed something about Himself to Peter. Peter understood something that took divine revelation. The heavens were being opened up to him. Let's continue. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Man, what an incredible thing. Let's look down in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that He must be killed and on the third day raised to life. What's happening here? Peter got part of a divine plan. What is Jesus now doing? He's sharing more of the divine plan. He's telling them what the next steps are going to be, what this battle plan is, and how He's going to engage in it. Let's look at verse 22. It says this, Peter took Him aside. Come on now. <laughs> May I ever want to take one of your leaders aside? May I want to take somebody aside? Hey, look, Jesus. You can answer honestly. Let's Think about it. Would you like to take one of your leaders aside? <laughs> as long as it's weight, it's okay. Exactly. <laughs> Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Wow, what an interesting thought. I mean, clearly, we've never done anything like that. Clearly, in our hearts our pure hearts, full of maturity. We've never encountered the Lord revealing His divine plan and then us want to go, Psst, hey Lord, come here for a second. This, is, this cannot possibly be the right plan. Look what He says. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Uh-oh. What does the next verse say? Get behind me. The one who is now opposing God's plan and that I have just revealed to you. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Now how, within this short a few verses, this is an amazing passage, gets enough revelation that we can all stand upon a rock that can be built upon. And within a few short moments, he is now one who is opposing the will of God. What happened to all that divine revelation that he just got? Apparently, he's not the only one that's at work here. Apparently, it's not just the Lord revealing his plan. There's something else going on in the spiritual realm, and he's falling prey and literally gets titled as Satan. You are now opposing me. You are now the one that is accusing, never, Lord. Come on, we need to be careful about what we say, never, Lord. About this can never happen. You need to be very, very careful lest you are operating in your own plan, your own thoughts, your own will, or maybe even the will of the enemy. As we clinch with the enemy here, it's worth considering that in both previous examples something happened. Men actually heard from God, but then they drew the wrong conclusion based on what they've heard from God. And their wrong conclusions put them in conflict with other people that have also heard from God. That's incredible, isn't it? We, we, we sometimes don't give, and I don't want to give any credit to our enemy, but we don't give enough thought 
how active he actually is. If he cannot keep you from getting a revelation, then he tries to get you to misapply the revelation that you do get. Come on. In Peter's case, he receives an amazing, extraordinary revelation, but it seems to directly contradict the revelation Jesus is giving, that there's suffering involved, difficulty involved, and so he goes to war with Jesus. Yeah, we want you to be at war with the enemy and never at war with each other. Paul's friends went to war with him. Were their motives bad? No, not at all. But that didn't change the fact that they were the active voice of the enemy. Nobody wants to be in that position, do they? No. Listen, as we move forward in the clinch tonight, we're trying to make this real for you. There ought to be a moment where you stop and think, have I been the voice of the enemy? Am I being used by the enemy? We want to take that, grab it by its hair, its shoulders, and turn it and learn to mount an offensive. But before we do, let's first look a little deeper into the eye of our enemy while we're in the corner. Go to 2 Corinthians 11, and we'll pick up in verse 23. The rest of you, tell me when you're there. Y'all get with us tonight. We don't want to preach about spiritual warfare while you sleep on the back row. There. I know nobody's sleeping on the back road. Damien will get you if you do. <laughs> Damien and I are friends, and he will get you if you do. So 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three, Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And not in the way that some people mean stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in dangers from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. Somebody say false brothers. False, false brothers. brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked besides everything else. I face daily the pressure of my concern for the churches. You know, it's important as we look at this that just because God is big enough to gain glory through something that a man endures, we don't make the tragic mistake of not acknowledging that that's not what Satan intends. He intended to stop Paul. He intended to kill Paul, and he came awful close many times. Think about this list. You're seeing a veritable list of Satan's attack plan to imprison you, to flog you, to expose you to death again and again. 39 lashes, beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked, floating in the open sea, rivers, bandits, danger from your countrymen, and danger from foreigners. False brothers. No sleep, hunger, thirst, cold, naked. Somebody say, Paul had it hard. Paul had it hard. The enemy wants you to have it just as hard. Do you think Paul was weak? Why did these things happen to him? 
because he was dangerous to the enemy and the enemy was exerting his will on him as much as Paul was trying to exert his father's will on the rest of the world. Amen. You're looking at a list of Satan's schemes. He was attempting to stop Paul from carrying out God's will. The fact that God gained glory through all that Paul endured does not diminish the fact that Satan was viciously attacking him. Would you consider with me for a moment that there has never been a time in history that God's will was that you have a false brother? See, God does nothing wrong. There has never been a time that it was God's will that you have a brother that defect. Whose will was that? See, we have to come face to face with the fact that God's will is not always done. Sometimes Satan is imposing his will on the situation and it requires forceful men who forcefully adhere to the will of God to do something about it. These events cause us to turn and come face to face in the clinch with our enemy. Now I want to make a turn. Do you want to make a turn? I want to make a turn. It's not enough for me to look the enemy in the eye. Once I've looked him in the eye, it is time to grab him by the hair, to twist his neck, and to turn him where you want him to go. Amen. That's done by the Word of God. It begins for my family in Deuteronomy 32, in verse 3. We're entering into the section of the message in your notes and life called the turn. You can't turn your enemy until you're close enough to see what he's doing. But once you can see it, you can grab him by the shoulders, you can pivot and you can turn him so that you can start to make an offensive. This is the turn. When looking at what Satan does, when looking at who Satan is, when looking at Satan's designs upon you, the most natural question that people ask is the wrong question. Why? Why did this happen? What do you mean, why did this happen? Satan, Satan, do you? It's what he does. It's like a dog barking. You don't ask why dogs bark. The enemy was an enemy to you. Say, well, why would God let this happen? Why are you assuming that God let it happen at all? We're in a war. It's time to make a turn. Look your enemy in the eye. Realize what he is. And then turn towards your heavenly father. Deuteronomy 32 verse 3. I will proclaim the name of Yahweh. How many of you know that there's a lot more in that sentence than just the name Lord or Yahweh? When we say name in Hebrew, it is how you phonetically say his name, but it's his character. It's his body of work. It's, repu it's his reputation. In your clinching situations, when your marriage looks like it's at an end, when your children are not doing well, when you've suffered loss, you need to begin to speak of God's character, God's authority, Amen. God's reputation, His body of work on earth. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. Who do you send into battle first? It's supposed to be Judah, according to the book of Judges. You begin to exalt God for His character, and you are already turning your enemy onto His heels. Amen. He is the rock. His ways are perfect. See, once you acknowledge God's ways are perfect, you can't make Him responsible for your false brother. Once you acknowledge God's ways are perfect, you can't make Him responsible for a premature death. It is your enemy. Look it in the face, grab Him by the shoulders, and turn Him. Our God is perfect. 
His ways and works are perfect. Look at how this verse ends in four. A faithful God who does no wrong. Say that with me. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just as he. This is how you begin to make the turn. You acknowledge that something terrible has happened. You look it in the eye like Abraham. You face the fact that your body was as good as dead. But you don't waver through unbelief. You turn that thing and you say he is able to perform what he has promised. Amen. And you begin to mount your offensive. That's good. If like me, you feel like you're in the 12th, tra- 12th round. We've suffered some loss this year. Can I tell you, none of it has come at God's hands. But all of the good things that he has brought into our life. That has come at God's hands. You need not ask the question why. Ask the question who. And it's already done for you. There is an enemy who wants to kill you. You better grab him by the shoulders and turn him so that you can take him where you want him to go instead of him dragging you off into some corner. My eyes have been opened to the battlefield. I listen when my pastor preaches. He told us to cry out like 2 Kings 6, to open our eyes. I'm not unaware of the enemy's schemes. I know he has designs to end my family. I know he has designs to kill me. But I'm saying no. Every wrong that has ever come in my life, none of it came through the hand of my father. Because he is perfect. He is just in all of his ways. Faithful, upright is he. The resistance... The opposition, the murderous intentions, they've been directed at me from my enemy. Now I'm going to trust my king. I'm going to grab this problem and I'm going to turn it in a way that I can mount an offensive against it. And I'm encouraging you, suggesting that you can do exactly the same thing. In the clinch, you turn your enemy. Somebody say, that's good. That's good. Y'all want some more of some stuff, some good stuff? (laughs) Amen. Go to Joshua 23. There. There. Say there when you are there. There. This scripture is special to me. I'm going to tell you a few reasons why. I don't know if you can relate to this. But there are times whenever you have battled something long enough, your endurance is gone, your strength is gone, sometimes even your vision is gone. And you feel like you've lost the wind in your very lungs and you can't breathe anymore. Reminders that come about the faithfulness of God's character, that he and his promises never fail. Say that with me. Say never. Never. Fail. Fail. Is that something to be trusted? Yes. You know, there are times, few and far between, when I have said yes to something and it didn't exactly work out to what I committed to. It's just far and few between, as my wife can testify. (laughs) Our words are not good enough. Our strength is not good enough. My promises are never good enough. But God's are. He is unwavering, he is unchanging, he is everlasting, and what he says, you can camp and bank and build on it. Amen. If God does not fail, therefore his promises don't fail, 
what is it really that fails in the moment? Because we're talking about clenching to your enemy and then having the strength to turn the tide in the opposite direction. It's usually my own heart that fails. It's usually my thinking that fails. But the minute that I lift my eyes up and I begin to set my attention on the king of kings and value the fact that he can be trusted, I no longer trust myself alone. I no longer trust just my feelings, praise God. I begin to trust the faithfulness of God. And so whatever he has promised you, whatever he has promised us as a church, it will come into its fulfillment. I am standing on this stage. I am in ministry full time with my best friends because God's promises never fail. Amen. But I can tell you there were several times when that didn't look like it was going to be fulfilled at all. It was in the complete opposite direction. But because of God's character being revealed to me, I was able to grab that thought, grab that feeling, and spin it around in the complete opposite direction. Amen. Amen. Can I drop the mic now? Yes. Okay. Go ahead. Let's turn to Psalm chapter 16. Turn to Psalm chapter 16. Pastor Eric and his family have been blessed. They've been able to turn whatever the tide is in their life. They've been able to clench and turn based around Deuteronomy 32. Pastor Matt and the P-Rose have been able to turn based on the Word of God their situations based out of Joshua 23. For the Sutherlands, it's been Psalm 16 for for several months now. Let's look at a few verses together. you there with me, Psalm 16? Is it surprising to you? That when God speaks to the pastors, he speaks through the law, the prophets, and the writings. Is that surprising to you? That something about the heart of God revealed in the law stirs my heart. That something about the direction that the word of God points to causes Matthew Piro to want to propel us in a certain direction. That something about the way that men act faithfully in corrupt circumstances moves the Sutherland's heart to want to prepare you. Does that surprise you at all? We didn't make that up. That is actually what God has done for us this year, is given each family a scripture independently of the others that happen to come from the law, the prophets, the writings, and address how we make a turn with our enemy. Amen. Psalm 16, verse 1. says this, Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. You know what this is doing? We've clinched. Now we're turning. We're reminding ourselves of what the Word of God says. We are turning only our affection, only our attention to what the Lord is, who He is, and what He's doing in our lives. Let's look at verse 5. Lord, You have assigned my portion and my cup. You know what that helps us do in the Sutherland family? <laughs> it helps us not to whine about whatever difficulty we're in. If the Lord has assigned us where we are supposed to be, we understand that all good gifts come down from the Father of lights. But you know what we know? That there's an enemy, but we're not afraid because He has assigned us where we're supposed to be. He has defined our ring, our boundaries, where we are and what we think is, man, we love the boundaries that the Lord has given us. Quit trying to look for somewhere else to be. Somewhere else, some other greener grass on some other side of the fence. The Sutherlands are going, this is where we are. This is where we make our stand. This is the turn that we say, we're not going anywhere else. There's nowhere else in the world that we would rather be than right here, exactly where God has planted us. Can you say that with us? I'd rather it be quiet than you say yes and condemn yourself by your own words here. 
I'd rather you think about it and go, hmm, maybe, Pastor, you let us read Psalm 16 a little bit in our household. The Lord has assigned me my portion and my cup. What does it go on to say? You have made my lot secure. I have sure footing now because I understand that the Lord has assigned these things to us. Verse 6, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. But wait, there's, there's a battle ahead. Yes, there are. There is. There's a battle all around. But this is what we're saying. We're, re, we're grabbing the reality. We're clenching it. This scripture is helping the Sutherland family to turn and get ready to mount an offensive. This is how we turn it in our house. What about in your house? How are you able to grab hold of the reality that's there and turn to be able to mount an offensive? The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. You know what that reminds me of? That the Word of God is true. That no thing that He ever says will prove to be false. That He is going to keep every one of His promises. This is how the Sutherlands say exactly both of the things that my brothers have said. This is how we hold on to it and turn. Let's look at verse uh, nine. Therefore my heart is glad, my tongue also rejoices, my body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the grave. The faithfulness of the Lord is one of the things that help, will help you to clinch and to turn. That faithfulness helps you to turn to mount the offensive, because you will not abandon me to the grave. Look at verse 11. You have made known to me the pathway of life. Come on, if He's made known to you the pathway, the way that you're supposed to walk, boy, can you feel it turning inside of you yet? Let's turn to Isaiah 46 together. Isaiah 46. So what scripture would you get up here and share with us? What are you able to turn, pivot in your life? Do you have a scripture like that yet? Because every service we're going to talk about clinching, getting a realistic picture of what's right in front of us, turning it because of the truth of God's Word, and then mounting, mounting an offensive and destroying the works of the enemy. Think about it, my friends. Do you have something that you can hold on to that the Lord has said? Let's look at Isaiah 46, 10. Are you there with me? There. It says this, in a beautiful way to turn any situation. The Lord says, I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come, I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Man, in my life, maybe you, need a script, maybe you also need a scripture like this where you can turn on something based on the truth of God's word. In the clinch, you come face to face with your enemy. You recognize that from time to time he does lay a glove on you. I wish that weren't true, but it is. But the turn is when you realize that's not how this situation is going to end. My God has already called the round. He's told me the outcome is certain. It's only the intermediate that there's any question about. And you know what? That's up to me. (laughs) So in the turn is when something rises up inside of you. And you say, I trust my God. I believe His Word is true. I'm not going to ask why. I'm going to go after who. And I know who it was. It's my enemy. So you begin to mount your offensive. 
having faced the spiritual and physical violence that our enemy is attempting to perpetrate upon us and our families, we, like David, go on the offensive. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 17 in verse 35. Somebody call out there. There. David is talking about what happened when he found himself in the clinch. When he made his turn, he says in 1 Samuel 17, 35, I went after it. <laughs> I struck it. I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair. I struck it and I killed it. Can you hear the holy savagery in David? Can you hear the indignation for what the enemy did? He came into David's field and took from David. So what was David's response? I'm going after him and his lair wherever he's at. I will hunt him down and I will break him and take back what he took from me. If you don't associate that kind of spirit with Christianity, you're wrong. Jesus Christ showed up to destroy the devil's work. He didn't show up to pat it, to make it feel better, to offer a philosophical alternative. He showed up to kick down the gates of hell. Amen. I want to be of the spirit that is mounting the offensive against the gates of hell. Amen. If you want to learn to mount an offensive, one of the first things you're going to have to do is learn what a wide base is. You're going to have to figure out how to take your spiritual stance with a wide base. Now, why do we have a wide base? Wow. So tentative. It's okay. You were wrong. We don't take a wide base so that somebody doesn't knock us down. That puts you on the defensive. Our wide base is so that we can deliver a powerful, unending blow with the right and the left hand against the enemy until he goes down. Amen. I'm not waiting to fall. I'm looking for an opportunity to knock him on his assurance. Let's go to 2 Timothy 3. Say there when you were there. There. Find verse 16. Friends, I'm not trying to be intense for the purpose of being intense. It got real for me this year. You bury a couple children and it gets real. You watch your friends fall. It gets real. The enemy has laid a glove on me this year, but I'm intent to put him down. I am not turning from the right way. The wide base. I'm not waiting for a chance to fall. I'm not hiding, hoping the devil doesn't get to me, doesn't hurt me. When Christians think of offensive Christianity, you reflexively go into defensive mode. You can't help it. You think about not giving the enemy an opportunity to attack you. You think about not leaving a door or a window open that he can crawl through. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about going in his window, kicking down his front door, dragging him into the front yard. Amen. See, somehow or another, the church has misunderstood our mission. Our mission was not to stand, build a fortress, and defend against hell's advance. Our mission was to go and kick down the gates of hell. We are on the offense, not the defense. We have to wake up, church. Amen. We have to wake up, church. Amen. In 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, 
What kind of scripture? Oh. You mean older and newer? All scripture? All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's break that down for just a minute in light of what we're saying. The word infinitely widens our spiritual stance so that we are ready for every good defense. No, that's not what it says, is it? We're ready for every hiding protection. What are we ready for? To go do the good work of God. Does that come naturally? Is that a stone rolling down a hill or a man of God forging up a hill? See, we're going to have to go on the offensive, church. The Word is the foundation for all warfare. How do I widen my stance? Widen your stance in the Word. Don't just learn a little bit of it. Live in it. Swim in it. Love it. The Word is, listen to this, the Word is God's powerful breath infusing the spirit of a warrior into everyone who is equipped by it. When you are reading the Word of God, His breath is touching you. He breathed the Word onto the pages. And above all else, our God is a warrior. When you get close to a warrior, do you know what happens? It gets on you. When you're breathing the same air that He's breathing, when you're contemplating the same Word that He breathed onto the page, you start to want to do the things that He did. And He never hid and played defense. He's been on the offense since the day that He rescued you from the dominion of darkness. we got to widen our stance. Amen. Amen. In Wade's message last Sunday, one of the scriptures he shared was Acts 1-4. But wait in Jerusalem until you have received what? Wait in Jerusalem until you have received power from on high. One more time. Wait in Jerusalem until you have received power from on high. Without that power from on high, saints, we are nothing. We absolutely need that power. Turn to Acts chapter 4. Let's read some more about it. We'll start in verse 31. Amen. The way that God wanted to initiate widening the base of his saints was to fill them with the Holy Ghost. It was to fill fill, fill them with the power that was from on high. He knew what they were about to encounter. He warned them many times before what they were going to face, the persecutions and the trials. And he did not want to have them go on the battlefield without a wide base of support of the power of God from on high. Let's start in verse 31. After they prayed, The place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Amen. Saints, when we set our eyes and we set our our forceful attention on the kingdom of God and operate as one body and seek the face of God in prayer, we will have to sometimes wait until we receive that power from on high. Sometimes it's been five seconds for me, and sometimes it's been years where I am holding on to the promise that God has made that his power will come and it will fill me with what I need to do what he's called me to do. But we should never give up in the unity with each other and the unity of seeking God's face until that power arrives. 
Verse 32. All the believers were one in heart. Say one in heart. One in heart. And mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And much grace was upon them all. <laughs> Realize that the place where they were meeting was shaken, but they were not. When we receive that power that's from on high, everything around us begins to be shaken up. But we stay ever firm on that wide base of his power. Amen. Secondly, they were filled to the brim with the wide base of God's word. Realize we had Pentecost already that happened in Acts chapter 2. Now we have another outpouring here in Acts chapter 4. What was happening in between? Is that you had persecution of the saints. But by receiving that power from on high, they were able to have God's word firmly planted under their feet. Amen. Lastly, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit that is the warrior breath of God. You know, being filled with the Holy Ghost is not just having chills and goosebumps when you're in worship or you're listening to the word. Being filled with the Holy Ghost is having a confidence and assurance that he is with you. You are hearing correctly. You are seeing correctly. And therefore, you will speak correctly. It will come out of your mouth with absolute force and it will shake everything around you. Amen. The wide base provided the opportunity to bring all believers into one heart. They crucified greed and impaled selfishness. Amen. The does, wide. Does that sound like a church on the offensive? When you have all believers in one heart and mind, when they are not claiming anything is their own, and they are testifying with the Word of God boldly in a way that God's Word says was powerful. See, that's a church on the offensive. Yes. That's what our lives are supposed to look like. That's what our lives are beginning to look like. Amen. Hey Amen. Turn with us to Matthew chapter 4. This idea of a wide base is essential. Not just because it's defense, but because it's an offensive weapon. It allows for more than one punch. You can't be a one-trick pony. You can't have one punch in the arsenal and think that you're going to defeat this enemy. That's, that's a, an erroneous way for us to think. We widen our base so that we can get ready to launch an assault against the enemy. Matthew chapter 4. Let's start in verse 6. Say there when you're there. It says this. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written. Everybody say, it's also written. It is also written. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. In this passage, Satan misappropriates the scripture. He's operating in counterintelligence and misinformation. You study any war that has gone on in human history you'll find out that that is a strong tool. That's a strong weapon that you want to start to defeat your enemy. You start launching misinformation. You give them information. You leak the wrong information to the enemy so that they might hear and operate incorrectly on it. Jesus heard this misinformation and because he had a wide base, <laughs> the very word itself, he was standing there and was able to understand and divinely and correctly Apply the word of God. He answered it. He didn't misuse. He didn't allow for a misuse 
of God's Word. How good are you at that? Are we so trying to be, um, and I'm not offensive to those around us, are we trying to be such good little Christians that we don't understand and we'll allow someone to misrepresent the very Word of God to us, around us? Or are we just never paying that much attention to what anyone else around us is saying? Are you allowing that to happen? Jesus didn't allow it. He had a wide enough base where when he heard something misused, he immediately began to address it. How did he address it? It is written. Jesus knew what was written and its relation to everything else that was written. Why do we spend so much time in the Word? Why is it a requirement for us daily? Because we feel like a good Christian. No, because we're trying to understand and let the Word of God explode in our heart to give us a wide base that we might go on the offensive. That we might launch against the enemy. Jesus says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He understood the very nature of His Father and quickly recognized that this was not how His Father worked. Come on, how many times do we get tricked because we've misapplied something or we don't understand His true nature in relation to us? Most of the mistakes in my life are because of these areas right here and I see Jesus giving us the right way to engage with the Word. With this wide spiritual stance in the Word, we can mount an offensive against our enemy. Amen? Yes. Amen. Somebody say wide stance. Wide, wide stance. stance. Now we're going to take our hands eye high. Come on, Alicia. Put your hand, hands eye high for me. Get them up, girl. When Alicia does that, everybody but Mario cowers. <laughs> now that we have our hands in eye high place, why do we hold our hands eye high? So we don't get hit. Listen to the voice of the appeasers feeding the crocodile, hoping he eats them last. I love you, but this is the broken church, not the victorious church of Jesus Christ. We don't hold our hands eye high, hoping to not get hit. We hold our hands eye a high so that we can see what we're hitting. Amen. Do you understand the difference? I'm not in guard trying to protect my face. I have my hands close to my eyes so that when I see it, I can hit it. Do you understand? As the church of Jesus Christ, we are not on defense. We are mounting an offensive. You hold your hands eye high so that you can hit what you see. Turn with me to Exodus 17. There. Verse 11. As long as Moses held his hands. It's not what it says, huh? What did it say? As long as Moses held up his hands. Come on, Rob, get your hands eye high. Everybody in the church, put down your pen. You've written thousands of notes. When's the last time you struck the enemy? When you get your hands up, it's a sign. I'm no longer cowering in a corner. We've come out of the clinch. We've made the turn. Defend yourself if you can. Moses held up his hands. They weren't down by his side. They weren't in his pockets. They weren't resting under his blessed assurance. Moses got his hands up 
because Moses was in a fight. Amen. The Israelites were winning. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. Come on, maybe we need to get our hands up. That's the last time we were winning is when you had your hands up. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Yehoshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. I would say that Moses' hands symbolized his vantage point. Moses had a warrior's view. He was on top of a mountain with his hands held high so that when he looked at it, he could hit it. And when he looked at it, he knew how to pray. He knew that his friends were in a struggle. He knew that he was affected by that struggle. And he kept his eyes on the battle and his hands held high. Saints, if we want to win, we better learn how to have eye high hands. I'm mounting an offense as my hands are starting to rise. Amen. Everybody turn to Judges chapter 7. Let's look at somebody else who had their hands eye high. Judges 7, chapter chapter 7, verse 15. Say there when you're there out loud. There. There we go. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Amen. The first principle in this is that we may believe in our hearts the promises of God, but the actual warfare of carrying it out is done with our hands. Amen. Let's speak to some personal things. Have you ever been in that situation where you or someone that you love is fighting and battling an illness and you believe in your heart that God's going to heal it? You believe in your heart that it's going to be cured and overcome. But when it comes to actually putting your hands on them, you tremble inside. Better get your hands up. You got to get your hands eye high. We have hands that were designed by God to deliver a crushing blow to the enemy's works. We say, yes, God heals today. Yes, he wants to fill people with the spirit and see them born again. But he wants to do it through your hands. He gets the glory, but he wants to use you as his instrument. The revelation and interpretation called for eye high hands. It's with this revelation of God's word and the character of who he is that we find that ability to bring an offensive attack to the works of the devil and watch them crushed under our hands. Amen? Amen. Amen. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6. And let's look at verse 8. Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 8, it says this. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. (laughs) They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. As we're talking about getting eye-high hands tonight, getting our hands up, stop letting them droop down. Why? 
The enemy wants us to have our hands down so that we cannot keep unleashing blows against him. Doesn't your mind want to go back to the reason our hands need to be up is because we need to be on the defense? It is in our nature. Many of us in this room, it's in our nature to think about the defense. The point of this is, Lord, strengthen my hands. Why? So I can keep throwing blows against the enemy. So I can unleash all the forces of heaven against all the forces of darkness. Right and left hand, throwing blows as hard as I can, trusting in the Holy Spirit that they will land and one will be the knockout punch that I've been looking for. This is what we have to be after. Do not let yourself continually slide, even as we are challenging you as your pastors. Even as we're here saying, we've got to mount the offensive. Do not slide, even this evening, back into the idea, well, we've got to get our hands high so we can be defended. Swing. Swing with all of your might. And swing again. And swing again. And keep doing it. Trusting that the Holy Spirit will give you the strength that you need to not let one opportunity be missed in this. Amen. He's ex- the enemy is expecting you to drop your hands. We live in a day and time where almost nobody has their hands up. That's why this sounds almost like a, this militant idea. Like, whoa, pastor, why are y'all so intense? Because we want you to deliver blows. I want my hands high. Amen. I want to have my hands eye high and just unleash against the enemy. What about you tonight? We've got to keep our eyes on what we get to hit next. That's how we get to mount this offensive. Amen? Amen. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 7. Come on now. Revelation chapter 7. Let's look at verse 17. It says this, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. You know, after we get a wide base so that we can ready to be able to launch multiple attacks against the enemy, we get eye high hands so that we can continue to unleash blow after mighty blow. (laughs) I want the enemy to be tired of me hitting on him. I want him to be begging me to stop when this thing is over. What we have to do is we have to take our place in the center of the ring. Everybody say Come center. Center. This is where we have to be. You know why? Because Revelation 7, 17 says the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We want to be in the center of the ring. Amen? Amen. You know, every good military strategy has a base of operations. And at that base of operations, you have the minds that are organizing the strategy for attack. The center of the ring, the center of the throne of God is where we mount our attack from. Yeah. But in there, as we see in Revelation 7, 17, what do we have? We have the lamb who is our shepherd leading us to springs of living water and wiping away tears from our eyes. We have good counsel. We have living water. And we have despair removed from our operations. That allows us then to take that counsel, to take that living water, to take that hope that drives away despair and drive our enemy into the ropes. Amen. Amen. The center of the ring is at the very center of God's will. It's where he reveals to us what our next plan or method of attack is. When you're at the center of the ring, you have the choices. If you're backed up against the rope, you don't have as many choices. 
We're saying get in the center, find out what his will is, and then you can take it to the enemy. Don't let yourself get backed away. Don't let yourself have your hands down low. Don't let yourself have a narrow stance. But get in the center of the ring and fight for what the enemy is trying to take from you. What is the enemy taking from our families? What are we letting him take from our families? Just by deciding that we don't want to stand in the center of the ring. Get in the center of the ring and fight. Fight for all that you're worth. Amen? The center of the ring. It's like being in the center of his throne. The enemy only can stand back and guess where the attack is coming from next. I'm not scared of the corner. I'm not scared of the ropes. But when we go to the corner and the ropes, it'll be because that's where the throne told me to take the battle. The center of the ring is my high ground. The center of the ring is back in the center of your mezuzah. The center of the ring is knowing that you're in the center of God's will and you march out from there to attack wherever he tells you to. The center of the ring belongs to the Christian that is in the center of his will. Amen. Would you like to see such a man that understood the center of the ring? Yes. We've come to a place in our message where we're going to have to close. Let's go to 2 Samuel 23. We clinched with the enemy in the corner. We understand that he has mounted successful attacks in so much as he has hindered the people of God. But ultimately he failed to kill. He failed to stop. We have looked into the face of our father and we have seen his goodness, the certainty of his plan. The next step may be intermediate. We might not know. What's going to happen? It's indetermined to intermediate. But we do know how this thing will end if we don't quit. So we are grabbing him by the shoulders. We are pivoting out of that negative situation. And we are beginning to mount an offensive. Our stance is wide in the word. Our hands are high by our eyes. We're looking for the next place to hit him because he's opened our eyes in a new way. And with hands high and a wide stance... We've taken the center of the ring. We will take this battle where we choose for it to go. We will not just react. We will be attacking. Are you in 2 Samuel 23? Yes, there. Verse 11. Next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorite. When the Philistines banded together at the place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled. Somebody say Israel fled. Israel fled. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. Everybody else ran. He stood on the high ground. Everybody else succumbed to fear. He impaled it. He took his stand in the center of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down. Does that sound like a defense or does that sound like something more than a defense? The defense was his clinch. But then he mounted an offensive. He struck down the Philistines. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Precious Christian, beloved saint, you have been under attack a long time before your eyes were opened to it. Our lives look like the book of Esther. Haman wrote the death decree. And we've only recently become aware of it. And it's begun to sting a little bit. We're not the kind that are going to lie down and beg an enemy who has no mercy to stop hitting us. We're going to stand up, clinch him in the face, 
turn his shoulders and mount an offensive against him. You do this in the word of God by taking a wide stance. You do this with your hands, not just your heart. You have to raise them. You have to get your eye on a target. You have to go after that target. And the center of the ring has to be your high ground. You fight on the terms that God tells you to fight, not the terms that your enemy has provoked you to. If we will stand in these terms, we will win. I don't know how many rounds it's going to take, but I know what the outcome is. And it's in the center of the ring that my hands will be held up as a victor with Christ. It's in the center of the ring that I choose to fight from. And in the center of the ring, I'll be the last one standing in Christ. Amen. Could you stand to your feet, saints? Amen.